Thank you for listening to the Reformation Bible Church podcast. We hope you are edified and encouraged by our ministry as you listen to our Gospel of John sermon series. For more sermons and resources, please visit the RBC website at www.rbcbakersfield.org. Thank you once again, and may the Lord bless you. Thank you, Lord, for waking us up this morning. Thank you, Father, for for giving us another day to honor and glorify you, to enjoy your creation, the common grace that you give to everyone, all flesh, but but Lord, we are also thankful for that specific grace that you have given to us, that particular grace that, that you have given to your people. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who came to this world, who humbled himself and he died on the cross. He rise from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He sent his Holy Spirit into our lives to change us, to conform us. Lord, I'm so thankful for the workings of the Trinity the things that that they have done to bring us home. Now, Lord, may this may this time, may this sermon glorify you. That's all I ask, Lord. We want to see you more clearly. We want to see you on high. So may this time be glorifying to you. In Christ's name I pray, amen. All right. The 18th president of the United States, and Ray, you might know who this is, uh, Ulysses S. Grant, lay sick in his bed, slowly dying of cancer. So one afternoon, his old friend Howard, who had a well-known reputation for being a religious man, came to pay the ex-president a visit. While the two old friends were reminiscing about old times, Grant suddenly stopped his friend mid-sentence and asked, Howard, tell me everything you know about prayer. Now, what is prayer? What does it mean to pray? Uh, The English Puritan Thomas Watson said, A godly man cannot live without prayer. A man cannot live unless he takes his breath nor can the soul unless it breathes forth its desires to God. Many have defined prayer as an earnest request or wish. Some view prayer as an address or petition to God in word or thought. Growing up, I used to view prayer as magical wishes that were dependent on how I acted. Let me give you, for example, uh, the night before my report card came out, I prayed to God, who I viewed as a genie, I would tell him that if I got good grades, then I promised that I would do something for him. You do something for me, I'll do something for you. And in that age, I would, Lord, I would be a better son, I'll be a better brother. Um, I promised I would clean my room, I would eat all my vegetables. Then the next day, I would proceed to be on my best behavior, thinking that God will grant my wish if I behave a certain way. That's how many of us probably view prayer or used to view prayer. The famous reformer John Calvin gives a great definition of prayer as he says, prayer is God's gifts, God's benefits. God's prayers work how God's benefits reach us. Prayer is how God's benefits reach us. And in prayer, Calvin would say, we enter into the throne room of God to have familiar conversation. That's a great definition of prayer. In prayer, we come to God as a child, Humble and meek, but we also come bold and unashamed. Prayers where pride is abandoned, where hope is lifted, where prayer, where pride is, is thrown out the window and, and supplication is made. Prayer is a place of our admitting our need to God as we make requests and petitions. So friends, how would you define prayer? Would any of those definitions be your definition of prayer? Another question, do you even pray? And if you pray, what do you pray about? Are you the type of person who generally only prays when you find yourself in a jam? You know, Lord, please let this police officer let me off with a warning, and I promise I'll never speed again. Or are you the type of person who prays about everything? 
You know, Lord, help me find a parking place close to the entrance. All sorts of people pray about all sorts of things, and you don't necessarily have to be religious to do it. For example, remember the bumper stickers, pray for America. All those people weren't Christians, I'm sure. But we as Christians are very familiar with prayer. Very, very familiar. The Bible itself commands prayer, and we see examples of prayers all throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, Abraham prayed for his son Ishmael, Abimelech, and for God to spare Sodom. Uh, Jacob prayed for God to protect him from Esau. Moses prayed that God would spare religious Israel. David offered a prayer for thanksgiving for God's promised blessings to him and his house. And he also pleaded with God to spare his son Bathsheba, the son Bathsheba gave birth to after their adulterous affair. Solomon prayed for God's blessings on Israel and for wisdom for himself. During the exile, Ezekiel cried out to God to have mercy on his people, as did Daniel. After the, ascension of, after the ascension, Jesus' followers returned to Jerusalem where they devoted themselves to prayer, as it says in Acts 6.4. From his conversion to the end of his life, the Apostle Paul's ministry was marked by continual prayer. But our supreme example of prayer comes from none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. Curtis Mitchell writes, beyond a doubt, the greatest examples of correct pray, practice prayer were those demonstrated by Jesus Christ. So distinct was his prayer life that by simply observing it, our Lord's disciples were motivated to request instruction on the subject. As they said, Lord, teach us how to pray. From the beginning to the end of his life, his earthly ministry was marked by frequent times of prayer. He prayed at his baptism. He prayed before his first preaching tour. Uh, Before choosing the twelve disciples. Before Peter's confession of him as Christ, before the giving of the Lord's Supper, before the raising of Lazarus from the dead. But all of those prayers are very short. Or the verse simply just says, Jesus prayed. Or they might only give us maybe two or three verses of what Jesus actually said. In the Bible, we don't have many examples of what Jesus actually was saying in his prayers. Until we get to John chapter 17. Because you see in John 17, we don't just have a few verses of Jesus praying. We have a whole chapter recorded for us of what Jesus actually was saying in his prayers. It's not just Jesus prayed, but it's a whole chapter of what Jesus was saying to the Father. Now, we understand that all scripture is breathed by God. But out of all the chapters in the Bible, there are a few chapters that are more revered than others, by theologians and people alike. And John 17 is one of those revered chapters. It is often called the Holy of Holies in all of Scripture. Jesus' high priestly prayer. Some consider John 17 the, the Mount Everest of all of Scripture. When the great reformer John Knox laid sick in his deathbed, He told his wife to open up the scriptures and read to him over and over and over John 17. Luther's right-hand man, Philip Melanchthon, said this, There is no voice which has ever been heard, neither in heaven or on earth, more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered up by the Son of God himself. Dietrich Bonhoeffer called John 17 a thunderbolt fallen from the sky. Its words are plain yet majestic, simple yet mysterious. One read of John 17 and the reader is instantly plunged into the wonders and the unfathomable depths of the inner Trinitarian communication between the Father and the Son. The whole story of redemptive history is seen in John chapter 17. The covenant of redemption established and and the choosing of the elect before the foundation of the world. The accomplishing work of Christ through the active and passive obedience. The salvation, regeneration, preservation of the elect and the glorification of the Son and the Father. As we read John 17, it's sort of like the veil is being drawn back. And the reader is escorted by Jesus Christ into the Holy of Holies. To the very throne room of God. It is the most elevated the most glory-filled chapter in the Bible, because it alone is where we see the communication, the communion between the Son of God and the Father. 
Here we are ushered, to, ushered into the very throne room of God. Here we eavesdrop on the eternal communion between the Son and the Father. Here, as A.W. Pink said, we are to remove our shoes and remove our hats and listen. Here we are to humble ourselves with reverent hearts because we are on the holiest of all of Scripture. Let's stand for the reading of John chapter 17. John chapter 17, and we're only going to be looking in at verses 1 through 5 this morning. John 17, 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him all authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. That they know that you are the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Such powerful verses, that is. You may be seated. Before we get started, let me refresh your memory and set the stage before us. And this is going to help you greatly. Jesus has just been spending all of his time preparing his disciples for what's about to take place. You remember? He instructs them with words to ease their worried and confused souls. They thought that Jesus was going to stay with them forever. Jesus drops that bomb on them. Hey, I'm leaving. I'm going back home. I'm going back to the Father. He tells them that he's going to prepare a place for them. But he will not leave them as orphans. But he will come to them. He will come back for them. He reminds his disciples that that he is the only way to the Father. Because if you have seen Jesus, then you have seen the Father. It's sort of like, guys, what you are doing, following me, it's a good thing. Your following me will not be in vain. He promises them another helper. One who will come alongside of them to comfort them. Who will be their advocate. Who will bear witness to Jesus Christ. And who will lead them in all truth. The Holy Spirit. He gives the disciples a new commandment. And that is they are to love one another just as Christ has loved them. He tells them that the world will hate them on the account of his name. And he tells them one last time that, that he indeed is leaving. But their sorrow will soon turn into joy. And their anxiety will soon turn into peace. And their sense of defeat will soon be turned into victory. Because Christ has overcome the world. Jesus, for the last three chapters, has been given the disciples reassurance and promises. Now he is going to the Father in prayer. And he asks the Father, he asks that the Father would fulfill all the promises he has made. That the Father would bring to fulfillment all his work that he has done here on earth. This morning I have three points I would like for you to consider. Number one, the glory of the Son of the Father in the cross. The glory of the Son and the Father in the cross. Number two, the glory of the Son and the Father in the giving of eternal life. The glory of the Son and the Father in the giving of eternal life. And number three, the glory of the Son and the Father before the foundation of the world. The glory of the Son and the Father before the foundation of the world. Let's look at the first point. The glory of the Son and the Father in the cross. The glory of the Son and the Father in the cross. And we see that in verse 1. If you look, when Jesus has spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. In the midst of betrayal, in the midst of slander, in the midst of the sufferings, in the midst of the beatings, in the midst of a mock trial, in the midst of death. Jesus doesn't run. Jesus doesn't hide. Rather, Jesus prays. Jesus has less than 24 hours to live. As a matter of fact, Jesus is going to die the next day. He knows how he will die. He knows when he will die. As the shadow of the cross quickly became and is becoming more and more of a reality to Jesus, Jesus prays to the first member of the Godhead. 
God the Father. We first see the posture in which Jesus prays. He lifts, his, he lifts up his eyes to heaven. That is amazing. Now, there's all sorts of ways Jesus could have prayed. He could have went down on his knees. He could have laid down. He could have sat down. He could have walked while he prayed. But rather, he chose to stand. And like many of us, when we pray, who bow our head and close our eyes, he lifts up his eyes to the heavens. And he says, Father. Now, please note, Jesus didn't go off to the side and pray like he does occasionally. He didn't go across the river to pray. No, Jesus prayed right there by the disciples. How do we know that? Because John writes as if he was standing right there. This was an open air prayer. Jesus had just finished giving the disciples promise after promise that he, in one sense, was preaching to them with words so comforting, words so soothing. But he's also separating himself from them. He is, for now, letting go of their hand. He will no longer, they will no longer be under his care. So what does he do? He lifts up his eyes to the heaven and prays that the Father will keep him or keep them under his care. He's taking the disciples from his hand and he's placing them into the Father's hands. John Calvin rightly said, doctrine has no power unless efficacy is imparted to it from above. Unless prayer is parted to it, imparted to it from above. It's not just sowing the word, friends. It's not just watering the word. It's praying to God that God alone will give the increase. Jesus lifts up his eyes to the heavens, which is a sign of the elevation of his heart to God. It's a sign of holy confidence. Jesus is teaching us spiritual reverence, which is due to God. The heavens of the heavens is a dwelling place. And the turning of our eyes toward his throne expresses a recognition of God's majesty and God's excellency. As Psalms 123 says, to you, I lift my eyes. O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Christ, our Lord, lifts his eyes to heaven and he says, Father, this word father is found 600 times in this chapter. The mediator, the, the eternal son of God, here addresses God as father. The word father is a term of endearment used by a child for his parent. It, it marks a close familiarity between Jesus and the father. It expresses the unique intimacy that the eternal son of God has always enjoyed with the first person of the Trinity. It's a term of affection. It expressed love, confidence, and trust. You know this when you were a child. When you would tell your daddy, father, you would tell him that because he is your dad, that you, that you trusted him, that you placed all your faith in him. He acknowledges his submission and dependence on the father while, while simultaneously claiming his, his equality with God as his son. There's a twofold thing going on here. He's making himself equal with the father by claiming to be the son of God. But he's also demonstrating his distinctiveness from the Father. Jesus is equal with the Father in essence and deity, yet he is distinct from the Father. He is not just a mere mode or manifestation of the Father. He is a distinct person within the Godhead. Because Jesus was not praying to himself. Jesus is calling God Father is nothing new in the Gospels. But throughout the Gospels, he constantly and continuously is referring to God as his Father. So he lifts up his eyes to the heavens and says, Father, and look what he says in the next verse. The hour has come. He lifts up his eyes to the heaven. He says, Father, the hour has come. Last Sunday, pastor explained what that term hour meant. But let's go a little bit deeper. All throughout the book of John, we have been hearing of this word hour, this phrase hour, this term hour. Going back to the second chapter of John, Jesus constantly is telling his people or telling people, my hour has not come. The hour is not at hand. The hour is not here yet. But in the 12th chapter of John, which is the beginning of his Passion Week, he started to say the hour has come. And now he is just a few hours from his hour, from the cross. The hour has come. We saw last week, Jesus says to his disciples, behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. Friends, why is this hour so important? 
What is the significance of this hour? Because, friends, it's an hour that would be stamped in history forever. Songs will be written about this hour. Sermons will be preached about this hour. Movies will be filmed about this hour. Debates will be had over this hour. Conversations will take place over this hour. It's an hour when the Lord of glory was to, made, was to be made sin for his people. It's an hour when Jesus would drink the cup of wrath prepared before him by God. It's an hour when the man of sorrows, the suffering servant, would be pierced for our transgressions and, and crushed for our iniquities. It's an hour when the sun refused to shine and the earth shook. It's an hour when all the Old Testament saints look forward to. It's the hour that Abraham, David, and Moses were promised that a pure sacrifice would come and wash the sins of his people. It's an hour when all prophecies, types, symbols, and shadows were pointing to. Friends, the hour has come when he who knew no sin will be made sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's an hour when Genesis 3.15 would be fulfilled, when the serpent's head will finally be bruised, would finally be crushed, when the prince of the power of this, of this world would be casted out, where Satan would finally be defeated. This is an hour that was predestined before the foundation of the world. This hour was the reason why the eternal Son of God left his throne and became like his own. Friends, it's an hour when Jesus would counsel our certificate of death, when Jesus would free us from the slave market of sin, where, where Jesus would take our sin and he would, he would nail it to a Roman cross. The hour of death is now here. The unfolding drama of redemptive history has finally reached its apex. Jesus' hour is finally upon us. So again, Jesus prayed, Father, the hour has come. And look what he says next. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. Yes, it's an hour of supreme suffering. It's an hour of greater, but it's also an hour of greater victory. Yes, the hour will be horrific to the world, but to the son and to the father, it will be an hour of glory. Jesus doesn't say the hour has come. Please save me from the wrath that I'm about to endure. He doesn't say the hour has come. Are you sure I can do this, God? Jesus looked beyond the pain. He looked beyond the sufferings. He looked beyond the nails. He looked beyond the thorns. And he looked at what the purpose of the cross was. God's glory manifested in a supreme way through the death of Jesus Christ. Friends, the glory of God is what life is all about. The glory of God and his attributes is the grand end of all creation. In his sufferings, God receives glory. In joy, God receives glory. And Jesus lived every second of his life seeking the glory of God, savoring the glory of God. And know in the midst of his greatest torment, the greatest torment that one man will ever have to go through, Jesus prays that God will glorify him so that God will receive glory. And what we see in the death of Jesus Christ is God's glory on full display. It's where the attributes of God are all seen in its full context, all together, culminating in the glory of God, bursting through as lights of beams or beams of lights. On the cross, we see the love of God. As God loved the sinful humanity in this way, that he would send his only son to be their substitute, to live a life that they couldn't live and die the death that they deserved and rise from the dead, completing their justification. On the cross, we see righteous, the righteousness of God on display because God will not let sin pass by. God will deal with it. On the cross, we see the holiness of God on display. For God's eyes are too pure to look upon sin as, as we read that great mystery of the Father not looking upon the Son. On the cross, we see the grace and mercy of God on display. For God is gracious and merciful to a rebellious people who hate Him, who are separated from Him, who are in enmity with Him. God sends His Son to die on a cross where sinful man and holy God will be reconciled back together. And on the cross, we see the wrath of God on display as God pours all of His vengeance and hatred on the Son, on the sin, on the Son, who knew no sin. The only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. The cross, ladies and gentlemen, was much more than an innocent man dying by the hands of Roman guards. The cross was much more than Jesus dying for you. The cross was God's glory on full display. We often don't see glory in death. 
But here Jesus asked the Father to glorify him through and in his death. What was usually viewed as the most horrific torture ever invented, being nailed on a cross. Jesus viewed the cross as God's infinite glory on full display. What seemed to be the worst possible outcome to for Jesus was in reality his ultimate victory. Friends, by looking at the cross from the standpoint of God's glory, the Lord saw triumph while everyone in the world saw nothing but tragedy. And friends, let that be a lesson for us as well. We always should look at everything through the lens of God's glory. From testings, hardships and trials to joy, happiness and peace. Uh, Pastor told us a few weeks ago not to focus on on how bad the circumstances are, but but rather look at the bigger picture. Look at what God is going to do in those circumstances, in those difficult circumstances, in you. But let's take that one step further. And let me add, God will once again show himself off in those circumstances. Look how God once again is going to show who he is. Look how God once again is going to show how gracious and how merciful he is, how wise and how loving he is. That even in spite, even in those difficult times, he kept you. He had mercy on you. He had grace on you. He loved you. And all those things were necessary to conform you to the image of his son. We must always ask ourselves, how will God receive glory out of this? Always. Our Lord here saw the bigger picture. He's asking the Father to glorify him through pain and through the sufferings. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Hebrews 12, 2. Jesus looked at the purpose of the cross and saw what the end goal was. And that was his glorification. But through his glorification, the Father would be glorified also. That's what he prays. Father, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. One theologian said, these words prove the Son is equal to the Father as touching his Godhead. But, but creature, what creature could stand before his creator and said, Father, or glorify me that I may glorify you? Yes. Yes. None of us. None of us can say that. Mm. Friends, when you view the cross, don't just view it as your sins being paid for, which is true, mm. but view it the way Jesus did. Don't just view the cross as if it's all about you. View the cross as the son of the living God being glorified in redeeming a people who are slaves to sin. View the cross as God's attributes all being seen through the death of Jesus Christ. View the cross as God's glory being on full display as the son of God paid a debt that we owed. It's all about God's glory from beginning to end. The cross was glory hour. That's how Jesus viewed it. And that's what Jesus was praying. Father, glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify you. Let's look at the second point. The glory of the Son and the Father in the giving of eternal life. The glory of the Son and the Father in the giving of eternal life. Verse 2 and 3. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. That they will know that you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Throughout the ministry of Jesus, Christ manifested the divine glory that the Father had given to him in a multitude of ways. His teaching was characterized by divine authority. As they said in Mark 1.22, And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority. He had authority to give others authority, to heal and to cast out demons. As it says in Luke 9, when Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And many others like to forgive sins and to offer salvation in his own name, to receive worship from others, to judge the world. And he even had authority over his own death. Remember, he says in John 10, I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. And listen to what he says next. This commandment I have received from my father. The father had given the son all authority. And please note, this authority was the same authority that was given to Adam in Genesis 126. Remember, God makes them in, in the image of himself 
And he says, let them have dominion over the fish and over the birds and over the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Jesus is now given that same authority. Jesus, as the last Adam, does what the first Adam failed to do. Therefore, is rewarded with the authority Adam failed to keep. Jesus is saying, glorify me, Father, since you have given me authority over all flesh. And friends, we live in a day and age where authority means nothing. When everyone is an authority. Everyone is a boss. But this is a universal authority. All flesh is exactly what it means. All mankind. Whether you're a believer or unbeliever, we are all under the authority of Jesus Christ. And one day every knee will bow to his authority and every tongue will confess to his authority, either under judgment in hell or grace in heaven. Jesus here is anticipating the full authority he would have as a result of the cross. Not only will Jesus receive glory to the cross, but after as well. Jesus will rise from the dead and he will ascend to the Father and he will sit at his right hand. And there he will rule with power while putting all things under his feet. His dominion will be an everlasting dominion. and he'll, His kingship will never end. He will reign forever. Jesus is given authority over all flesh, but also Jesus says his authority is to give eternal life to all whom you had given him. What an amazing statement that is. So deep, so rich. Look back at verse 2. Since you have given authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So Jesus goes from having authority over every living thing to having authority to give eternal life to all those whom the Father had given him. This is the first mention in this prayer of a certain people group. Please know, brothers and sisters, Jesus doesn't say that he's been given authority to give eternal life to everyone in the world. Jesus doesn't say that he's been given authority to give eternal life to every person who has ever lived. Jesus doesn't say that he's been given authority to give eternal life to every single person in the world, whether they have faith in him or not. The giving of eternal life is not a universal giving. Rather, it's a particular giving. It's a limited giving. It's only to a certain people group. Jesus is praying, Father, glorify me, since you have given me authority over all flesh to give eternal life whom, to all whom you have given him. Friends, If you don't know this, let me tell you straight out. Not every person in the world is given to the Father. But only the ones whom the Father gave to the Son before the foundation of the world. This is what the Bible teaches. As much as we try to sanctify the language, as much as we try to not get ourselves in trouble, Jesus didn't die for everyone's sins. He only died for the ones who were given to him. Let me give you some proof texts. Matthew 1, 1, 21, and she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep. I am known by my own as the father knows me. Even so, I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep, not the world. Not every person in the world, not every person who ever existed and other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring and they will hear my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Why doesn't every person in the world believe in Jesus Christ? Jesus gives us our answer. You do not believe because you are not my sheep. As I have said to you, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hands. Before the foundation of the world, God sovereignly gave the son a particular people whom 
will be his love gifts. Whom will glorify him and who will honor him and who will obey him. Friends, do every person in the world honor, glorify, and obey God? Only the people of God do. Jesus comes to live for those particular people. He comes to die for those particular people. He comes to rise from the, for those particular people. And beloved, if this sounds cold to you. If you are here this Lord's Day, and you say you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you believe in his perfect finished work, you believe that he is God, you believe in Christ and Christ alone, then you are one of those love gifts that the Father gave to the Son before time and space began. If you have opposition to this, then please note that you are one of them. You are one of those whom he foreknew, whom he set his love upon, whom he was very fond of, who, had, who, who you and him shared an intimate relationship with. You are the ones whom he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. You are the ones who were predestined. You are the ones who were also called. You are the ones who are called. You are the ones who were justified. And you are the ones who were justified, but also glorified. Romans eight twenty nine thirty. You are the ones whom he had blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Even as he chose us before in him, before the foundation of the world, that he should be that we should be holy and blameless before him. If you're a believer this morning, praise the Lord, because in love he predestined you for, for adoption as sons. Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, in which he has blessed us in the beloved Ephesians 1. You are the ones who had obtained an inheritance. You are the ones who have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. You are the ones who are no longer slaves to sin, but free in Christ. Friends, if you believe this morning, then you are among the elect. You are part of the called out ones. You are the they and the those and the many and the sheep. Friends, you are part of the bride that Jesus came down from heaven and he sought after. We might roll our eyes at this. And we might give a yawn to this. Because you don't understand the depths of the love that Christ had for you before the foundation of the world. And you don't understand that Christ doesn't do this for everyone. Because if he did, then no one would be in hell. Jesus, over 2,000 years ago, was praying for you, believer, here this morning. Praying for you. You are the ones who had obtained every blessing. Jesus' blood was not wasted. And if you say he died for everyone, then his blood was wasted. But every drop of blood that ran down that Roman cross and streamed down Golgotha's hill had a purpose. And that was to save all those whom were given to the Son by the Father from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation, in order that the Father and the Son would be glorified in giving eternal life to the elect. Non-believer, if you're here this morning, if you have ears to hear and if you have eyes to see and hearts to receive what the Word of God is saying, don't say to yourself, well, God has already chose whom will be saved, so there's no use for me to even trust in Christ. Please don't say that. Please don't leave this, this building saying that. Non-believer, the basis of the free offer of the gospel is not the doctrine of election or particular atonement. The basis, the free offer of the gospel, the basis of that is Jesus will save all those who call upon his name. That he will save you, he will redeem you, and he will save you to the uttermost. Non-believer, confess your sins. Confess that you are a sinner, that you have broken God's holy law and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you do that, you will be this, these people. Backslider, person who has been dipping back into sin. If you're here this morning, understand that the blood that paid for your sins was not cheap, but it was costly. It cost the eternal son of God his very own life. Understand that on the cross, Jesus was paying for that very sin that, that holds you chained up like a slave. Friends, when inmates get out of jail, 
They don't take regular trips back to prison. And they don't dream about the handcuffs and the shackles. They live like free men and free women. How much more should you live since you have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ? I repeat the words of the Apostle Paul in Galatians 5. For freedom Christ has set us free. Therefore, stand firm and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Jesus died to free you. Jesus died in order to give you eternal life. And he he says that in verse 3. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus whom you have sent. We often don't think... Or we often think that Jesus only saved us from an eternity in hell. That's what many of us think. And it's true. He does. And he did. But that's not the way Jesus viewed eternal life. Jesus says eternal life is knowing God. And knowing God is only possible through believing in Jesus Christ. Friends, Jesus is referring to or when he says eternal life, it's not, a, it's not a quantity of life, not a duration of life. It's a quality of life. It's a different ki- kind of life. It's much more than living forever and ever, but it's the enjoyment of intimate fellowship with God. The fellowship that we never had. It's not only a future possession, it's a present reality. This type of knowledge is not mere head knowledge because we know that even the demons know God. The type of knowledge that Jesus means is a knowledge that dwells in the heart and influences the life. It's what we believe up here and what people can see out there. It's internally knowing God and loving God and it's externally showing it. It's a life lived that was similar to our Lord Jesus Christ who glorified God in all that he did. That is why Jesus saves us, to glorify God. That is the eternal life Jesus saves us to. We were originally created to display God's glory, to spread God's glory to the ends of the earth, to share in God's glory. But we failed. God sends his son to die to give us eternal life, a life that is lived to glorify God. Friends, let me ask you one question, or a multitude of questions, I should say. Do you have eternal life? Do you have eternal life? Do you live a life that's selfish, that's all about you, all about what you want, all about what you dream, and all about what you desire? Is your knowledge of God merely intellectual and not practical? And friends, do you believe in Jesus simply to escape the torture and eternity in hell? Is that is why you've come this morning? Friends, none of that is true Christianity. That is not the life Jesus saves us to. Jesus' prayer is for us to have a life that reflects God's glory, an abundant life, a free life, a life that the world can understand but so desperately wants and needs. Jesus doesn't say eternal life is a two-story house with a pool or a good job with a nice car, a perfect marriage with kids who get straight A's. All those things are fine. I'm not bashing any of those things. But like what Jonathan Edwards would say, those are mere drops of happiness. Knowing God in an intimate way, is the ocean. Those are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God and knowing Him is the substance. Those are but scattered beings, but knowing God and being found in Christ is the sun. I pray that you know Christ like that this morning. Non-believer, I pray that you turn from your sin. You live a life that you were originally created to live. It has to glorify Him, to know Him to worship him, to obey him. So we see the Father and the Son both receiving glory and and redeeming a people and offering them eternal life. And now let's move on to the last point. The glory of the Son and the Father before the foundation of the world. The glory of the Son and the Father before the foundation of the world. Verse 4 and 5. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. At first read of this prayer, one might think that Jesus' prayer is a bit selfish. It's a bit egotistical. 
I mean, in verse one, he says, glorify your son. Now he's repeating himself saying, glorify me, father, in your presence. These are the prayers that that we are all too familiar with. And the prayers that we are all guilty of. Lord, make me happy. Lord, make me successful. Lord, meet my needs. But unlike our selfishness when we pray, Jesus is being far from a label of being called a a label of being selfish in his request because Jesus is simply asking for something to be returned to him that was his in the first place, that he already enjoyed. Look back at verse 4. I glorify you on earth, having accomplished the work that you've given me to do. Jesus is saying to the Father that he had accomplished the work that the Father had given him to do before the foundation of the world. Jesus had kept the law and he had fulfilled the law. Jesus redeemed a people for his namesake. Jesus completed the covenant of redemption. And friends, notice how Jesus is speaking of the cross as if it's already a done deal. He tells the disciples in in John 14, 30, I don't have much more time to talk to you because the ruler of this world approaches. He has no power over me. We saw last week Jesus ending his farewell discourse to his disciples saying that he has already overcome the world. Jesus still hasn't yet been crucified, yet he's speaking as if his victory has already been awarded to him. Jesus anticipated his victory. He was certain that the eternal promise of God would be perfectly accomplished and nothing could prevent Jesus from accomplishing his mission. This should be a lesson for us as well. Jesus' prayer is for the Father to glorify him through the cross. He is placing all of his trust and confidence in the Father's purpose and hands. This, too, should remind us to trust in God's sovereign working, to take comfort that he is always in control. Christ's willingness to be a sin-bearing sacrifice on the cross was the ultimate demonstration of his complete commitment to obeying the Father. His commitment to trust the Father, knowing that God will lead him into victory. Jesus completed the task. Jesus did what Adam failed to do. He obeyed God, unlike rebellious Israel. He restored what we had broken. He is our champion. And on the cross, his victory cry would be three powerful words. It is finished. Jesus knows that the hour of glorification is at hand. He can taste victory. So he says in verse 5, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So deep. So deep are those words. Simply put, Jesus is asking that the Father will return to him what he set aside. The uninterrupted, unveiled glory in the presence of the Father. Jesus prays that, that his full glory will be restored. It was a glory that was too much for Moses to handle. It was the glory that caused Isaiah to say, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It was the glory that, that three of Jesus' closest disciples got a glimpse of at the Mount of Transfiguration. For 33 years, Jesus' glory was veiled. Jesus' glory was covered up. In his incarnation, he voluntarily limited the use of his divine attributes as he took on the form of a servant and became obedient to death on the cross. Friends, nobody in history has ever done this. And nobody in history will ever do this. Nobody in history has ever left all of his glory, all of his riches behind to become lesser than what he actually was. Nobody in history has ever started out so high and ended up so low. Jesus is ready to sit on high again. Jesus is ready to receive back from the Father what he shared with him in the beginning. After an earthly life of submission and humiliation, Jesus was ready to return to full glory that awaited him at his Father's right hand. And friends, please look at me when I say this. There will come a day when we will see him for all that he is. We will not see him in his humiliation. We will not see him 
the way everyone in the world saw him. He will not be the suffering servant. We will not hide our faces from him. We will not reject him. No, we will see him in all of his majesty, in all of his splendor, in all of his glory. Jesus prays for his glory. And that's how we should always pray. That the Father receive glory in all that we do. In closing, this is just the start of this beautiful prayer by our Lord. If we could summarize these five verses, we could say that Jesus prays for God's glory. He prayed for God's glory to be seen through his death, through his resurrection, and his ascension. He prayed for God's glory to be spread throughout the earth as he prays for all whom the Father had given to him before the foundation of the world. These people are the ones who will be God's people. And he will be their God. And lastly, he prayed for his glory to be rightly returned to him. He prayed that the Father would glorify him in his presence just as the Son had glorified him while he was on earth. Jesus' mission was accomplished. Jesus' mission did not fail. He finished the work that he was assigned to do. Hebrews 1 tells us after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. In the Old Testament, in the temple, there was no seat for the priest to sit down. Why? Because his work was never done. But our high priest, when he finished, when he said it was finished, he said everything that was finished. When our high priest was done, Everything was done. There's nothing that we add to it. Jesus paid it all. And when it was all accomplished, Jesus took his rightful seat next to the Father. And because of his submission to the Father, God has given him a name that is above every name. Jesus Christ. Let's stand.